you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jim Salakrup, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and today's interview is a special one with Jim Salakrup. Jim, of course, if you've been around Spider-Man through the 90s, through the 80s and 90s, you probably know him as editor of all of the Spider-Books through the late 80s, early 90s, um, and especially through uh, the beginning of David Michelinie's run and with Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson. So in this interview, we get to talk a lot about the different things that he was a part of, including um, the, the wedding. That was a big one. Talking about Craven's Last Hunt, talking about, of course, Venom, bringing back the red and blue costume. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy this. If you want to reach me, you can check me out on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Just look for Epic Marvel Podcast. Uh, or you can email me at epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com. And if you really want to feel special, you can head over to patreon.com slash thunderquack and become one of our supporters. Help us out. Keep this podcast going by donating a buck or two and get some exclusive podcast uh, episodes from uh, our various different podcasts in the Thunderquack Podcast Network. We appreciate your support. So without further ado, here is an interview with Jim Salakrep. Can you explain to me the editing structure of uh, Spider-Man at the time in 87 when you started editing? Because uh, you jumped on all three of the titles, right? Mm-hmm. Was it the thing where if you, won, if you wanted someone wanted to edit Spider-Man, you had to edit all three Spider-Titles? Uh, yeah, that, that made sense to me. Uh, uh, I uh, grew up when uh, there was just uh, one uh, new Spider-Man title, uh, one a month. And uh, maybe during the summer, there'd be an annual. Spider-Man was uh, very much like a soap opera. One issue would lead directly into the next, and uh, I I like that. And uh, I was never crazy about multiple new Spider-Man titles. Uh, I always felt there should just be one. So one of the things I tried to do was uh, a couple of times with... uh, starting with Craven's Last Hunt, is, is just have the stories go from one title right into the next one. Right. Um, and so was there a hierarchy of titles? Like, um, uh, were they all kind of treated equal, or was, like, Amazing Spider-Man was, like, the flagship and big things happened there? It's all a matter of uh, opinion, really. I mean, I guess that's probably how they they uh, looked at it previously. But when I took over, I mean, I really didn't like that. Uh, It's almost like they were taking the amazing uh, Spider-Man title, and if I remember correctly, because it's now been some time. (laughs) It has, yes. Yeah, it was almost as if, you know, they would have one title would be uh, focused on uh, his life at the Daily Bugle, 
another title might be his personal life. Another one uh, might be his, uh, his college life. Uh, or and, and it seemed like he had a different girlfriend in each series. And <laughs> right. I, I, I just I just didn't like it at all. I, I thought it was. Uh, you know the wrong way to go. Every you know every. It's not that I'm right. You know, it's just everyone you know has their own approach to doing things. So yeah, I'm sure that was a valid, uh, intelligent approach. Uh, you know, for the other editors who who prefer to do things that way, and but for me, you know, all I can think of is like say a classic sitcom, The Mary Tyler Moore Show. And uh, it was so popular that they kept spinning off, you know, character after character. You know, the Cloris Leachman uh, character got her own show. You know, Phyllis, uh, the uh, Valerie Harper character got uh, Rhoda. There was a Lou Grant show. It's just <laughs> yeah. toward the remaining seasons of the Mary Tyler Moore show. I, I, I think it really hurt the show. You, you, you were they, she was losing some of the the strongest characters. It worked as an ensemble. You know, this would have been unthinkable, but it's like as if the X-Men, when it was successful, you know, there's been lots of spin-offs, but all the characters stay <laughs> still right. in the X-Men, the, you know, the main title, you know. So, yeah, Wolverine could be in his own book, but he was still in the X-Men. So I, I just, you know, I, I, so I wanted all that back in, in each of the Spider-Man titles, so there was a sense of no one Spider-Man title was more important than the other. You know, my feeling about it was there was just one Spider-Man, one Peter Parker, you know, uh, contrary to now there's a Spider-Verse, but, uh, <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> but clones aside, uh, you know, I, I wanted there to be a sense that if you were a Spider-Man fan and you picked up any Spider-Man comic, I didn't care if it was web, spectacular, amazing, you were picking up a Spider-Man comic and it had the uh, you know, ongoing uh, adventures of this character. So it was a little tricky at times. And uh, again, one of the reasons for a storyline like uh, Craven's Last Hunt I just didn't like the idea that you could pick up a Spider-Man comic uh, one week and Spider-Man, Peter Parker, is buried a lot. Then the next week, he's fine, and he's (laughs) fighting another another villain, and, 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 and maybe there's a footnote that says, you know, this takes place before the events of last week, or, or worse, this place takes place after. (laughs) <laughs> so like it, it, it's it's oh well I guess it'll be okay yeah right <laughs> out and fighting uh, the rhino now but uh, to me it was uh, it's very important we're creating these kinds of stories uh, that on some level we believe in these characters and we believe this is all real and we want to treat it that way uh, as much as possible you know I think Stan and others they call it what is it the uh, suspension of disbelief. Right. And you want you want you want you're taking this fantasy concept and you want to treat it as as uh, you know you got this fantasy idea, but you want to treat it as realistically as possible within you know the restrictions that we have, and and so to my mind it was crucial that it just felt like there's just one 
Peter Parker, and it's, it's the same one in all the books, that one book isn't more important than the other, et cetera, et cetera. And everything I did as the editor was to try and reinforce that. Even with, uh, you know, such seemingly superficial things as the logos on the books. For example, you know, the Spider-Man logo, which I think the Amazing Spider-Man logo is, is pretty much back on the comics yeah. nowadays. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the classic Amazing Spider-Man logo. That's Spider-Man. I see that. That's Spider-Man. You know, it, there's, it, it falls into branding and trademarks and all that. Right. So I was, like, surprised that the Spider-Man titles, you know, not only do they have different titles, but different logos. And (laughs) I guess, uh, and this was even more unbelievable to me, that DC probably noticed that. And because Marvel was so successful back then, that even though they had, you know, Superman, who has perhaps the most recognizable logo, superhero logo in the world, I think there was a period of time there where they felt, oh, we got to do what Marvel's doing, because they, <laughs> 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 they, they know best. So there were these other Superman logos, and, uh, you know, who can possibly remember what they look like? But, wow. you know, when I mention Superman, you think of the classic logo. Of course. And so the same thing I wanted to do, first thing I wanted to do on the... Um, the three Spider-Man titles was first get permission to uh, shorten uh, the title Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, to oh. just the Spectacular Spider-Man. Okay. The reason for that is a you know sort of a moot point now. So there's no yeah I think they brought back Peter Parker on as one of the titles again, but back then sales on newsstands were still very important and they were very healthy you know we sold a lot of comics on newsstands you know and I would look at what the uh, distributors how they would offer the titles and they you know and they would send out these computer printouts back then it was a you know old school type computer printout and they didn't have you know they would shorten the titles there was only so much room for a title so Instead of saying Spider-Man, it just said Peter Parker. Right. <laughs> now the character is so world famous, it's, it's probably unimaginable that anyone doesn't know who Peter Parker is. But back then, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm betting your average newsstand guy didn't necessarily know that was a Spider-Man comic. So, you know, why would he order it? Interesting, yeah. So part of my thinking was if we could just get here, could have Amazing Spider-Man, you know, Spectacular Spider-Man, Web of Spider, get that name in there for those people, just so you know the people ordering it had uh, a, a solid idea that this was a Spider-Man comic. Plus, I wanted, as I was saying, the the logos to uh, look uh, similar, which. Uh, I remember there was uh, some folks in Marvel sales department that were, you know, completely uh, <laughs> horrified by this notion. Really? And they were saying, oh, I've worked in the warehouse. This is going to screw everything up. They're not going to know which book is which. And, <laughs> and uh, somehow I prevailed against them. I don't know how. And I got to do it. 
And as far as I know, there was never a single complaint from any warehouse anywhere (laughs) (laughs) where they were unable to tell which Spider-Man comic was which. But I just wanted, you know, if, if this is what's successful, and Marvel owns Amazing Spider-Man, you know, I still, you know, my, my, my wish would have been just a weekly Spider-Man. Because the comic book fans, they go to the, you know, I, I know I do, you go, you go to the comic book store every Wednesday for the new comics. We watch TV shows on a weekly basis. Uh, it just seemed to make more sense to me. Why can't we just have one weekly Amazing Spider-Man comic? Yeah. Uh, that would have been my ideal goal. I came close in, you know, doing a couple of storylines that ran through all the titles. But to be fair, there was a little uh, negative feedback from some subscribers who maybe only had a subscription to one of the three Spider-Man titles. And so they would get in the mail, here's part three, and here's (laughs) part six. (laughs) So uh, uh, my argument was, well, then, uh, you know, they should subscribe all Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. That that didn't go over too well. But but then we came out with a collected edition, so uh, which of the um, Craven's Last Hunt, which... uh, came out 31 years ago and it's still in print <laughs> yeah it's amazing <laughs> so i i don't think many people are are confused about it anymore so i think that worked out okay uh what do you think the percentage is of the people who would buy all of the spider titles opposed to people who just picked up maybe one back then i don't know to be honest i i had a sense uh, that the ones who would only get a particular title, it may have been that they were given a gift subscription. Okay. So, you know, that may be their only, you know, they, they may not have even known there were two other Spider-Man titles or, right. or what have you. But if you're a Spider-Man fan, you're probably going to pick up all of them. Yes and no. I mean, uh, if that was the case, then... You know, the sales would have been identical for uh, three titles. And yeah. traditionally, Amazing would be the strongest seller. Okay. And I think uh, possibly that's because of what you were saying before, that, that the, the, uh, the editors may have uh, had a, a hierarchy uh, where the, you know, Amazing is the real Spider-Man title. The other two are just spinoffs, which I... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I just, I, even talking about it now, it still uh, bugs me. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I just, you know, it, it's just, if it's Spider-Man, and if you want to believe it. So every, everything I did, I mean, even to the point of trying to get the teams on the books to be as few people as possible. I mean, uh, generally, uh, uh, they would have one writer per title. I had just two. Michelini would was on Amazing, and um, when I took over, you know, the, eventually the the writers uh, who were doing um, Spectacular and Web, you know, moved on to other things, which created an opening, and it was uh, a great thrill for me to bring back uh, Jerry Conway, mm-hmm. who. Uh, I think uh, most fans, if they grew up in the 60s, 
you know, the two main Spider-Man writers I think they, they think of would be Stanley himself and then, you know, Jerry Conway, even though Roy Thomas had that, you know, that brief little <laughs> run, which uh, was, you know, you know, crucial to introducing, say, Morbius and a few other things. Right. But, uh, you know, Jerry has certainly uh, did a lot of, you know... Uh, the uh, death of Spider-Man Gwen Stacy and, and everything, yeah. Introduction of the Punisher uh, and so much more. What What a lot of those fans don't realize is that, because they look back and they think, oh yeah, Jerry did a big run back then, and then he was back for a little while. The truth is, he actually wrote more Spider-Man comics, individual issues for me, than he wrote the first time around. <laughs> right, because he was on the two titles. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah no, well. it was, uh, and then, you know, he introduced, uh, you know, Tombstone, among oh, yes. other, you know, great characters, and, uh, uh, I mean, there was a particular run there on Spectacular Spider-Man that uh, uh, I think uh, a little underrated, but uh, I got a, a huge kick out of it. I mean, Tombstone technically was uh, originally uh, appeared in Web of Spider-Man, but since Jerry was writing both titles, he wound up appearing mainly in Spectacular Spider-Man. And what I remember mostly about the story outside of the story itself was you know this was almost like on uh, the old days of tv talk shows and i guess they're still with uh, the tonight show and uh, what's the one on cbs now with, uh, yeah the guy who was uh, uh stephen colbert oh on uh, cbs Yep. And all these talk shows, you know, they have lots of comedians on all the time. Mm-hmm. And within the world of talk shows, you know, within the world of comedy, that when a comedian goes on to do his, uh, you know, his set, not only is it a big deal if the audience loves it, they think it's an especially big deal if the band likes them. <laughs> yeah. Because they're the most jaded, you know, they're there every night, they've seen every comedian in the world. Right. You know, most of the time, they're not paying attention to the show. They're, you know, who cares? That's just a job to them. But if, if a comedian suddenly gets the band laughing, that's like a major accomplishment. So similarly, in the comic book world, <laughs> at least back up at Marvel, the production department... You know, the guys back before computers who were in the Marvel bullpen working with pen and ink, you know, to make art corrections, lettering corrections, any any corrections the uh, the editors requested before the, the comics were ready to be sent off to the printers. They would see every book every day, you know, right. every comic, you know, and, but it's work, you know, like, oh, here's another book after have to re this, i got to do that. <laughs> but for whatever reason, on Spectacular Spider-Man, and I think it goes back to its soap opera roots, there was uh, this one character, Joe Jameson, not Jameson, <laughs> uh, Robbie, uh, Joe Robinson, who would, you know, for many, many issues, you know, with a few exceptions, his main role would be... Uh, you know, playing the uh, the conscience of J. Jonah Jameson. You know, Jameson would say, you know, I want to fire that Parker kid. And, 
and Robbie, no, no, you know, calm down. Uh, those photos are great. You should pay him more. What's wrong with you? Leave yeah. the kid alone. He's he's a good kid. You know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, usually, you know, holding his pipe and <laughs> right. and offering his sage advice. So we really didn't know much more about him. And Jerry introduced this whole story about this character from his uh, his past. And each issue, you know, like the stakes kept going, getting higher and higher. You're like, uh, oh, uh, or, you know, Robbie uh, has to go to trial. You know, yeah. like they, they never, you know, like the, the bullpen kit guys were saying, what's, what's going on here? What's going And then, you know, at the end of the, you know, now he has to go to jail. And they're saying, what? You're sitting, what? <laughs> I think even Sal was very much into it. That's and good. And he's a guy who, 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 well, to give you an example of what I'm talking about, he's another guy who, if anyone, who, uh, could, you know, should have had burnout <laughs> from drawing oh, man, so yeah. many superhero stories, so many different characters on Avengers, Marvel team-up, et cetera, et cetera, you know, Sal Buscema. But I think there was something about this storyline that inspired him, and he was really excited about it, that, you know, like, Generally, uh, he was he was just very workmanlike. We'd send him the the plot outlines and and we'd get the pages in. And this was like uh, he 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 decided, you know, for uh, professional reasons that you know the the industry was changing a little bit. Where for many many years, when he first started, the the way to make money was volume. You had to produce as many pages as you could. And everyone loved his uh, clear storytelling and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of times he would just do layouts and uh, to get him to do as many titles as possible yeah. and, you know, and have, you know, hire, you know, uh, uh, artists who would finish, you know, and ink and the inking, uh, the artwork. But around that time, when he was on Spectacular Spider-Man with me, there was a change going on where suddenly there were all these incentives for the artists and writers and everyone involved uh, to to put a little bit more effort in because the the higher the sales, there was now, uh, an, um, they didn't call it royalties, it was like a, an incentive payment program. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so if the sales went up, uh, the artist could make more money. Yeah, Yeah. well, it was based, you know, the higher the sales, the more money it makes. So I think this Sal was inspired. Oh, I'm going to go all out. I'm going to give 100 percent here, and you know that's why he was not not only uh, penciling spectacular. Uh, he was also uh, inking it, mm. which fit right in with what I was trying to do on ev- on every uh, aspect of uh, you know the Spider-Man books to get everyone as involved as as much as possible at paper cuts, for example. Uh, where I'm uh, editor-in-chief now, and next year we'll be going into our 14th year of uh, uh, publications. Um, and thank you very much. And uh, But overall, I mean, not that I have anything against inkers, but generally we uh, always have, our, you know, our, our artists, you know, do the whole thing. They do the pencils and the ink. They're, you know, they're very much uh, involved. Uh, and trying to, you know, do as much as possible. And I, so, you know, you saw that on Spider-Man where Todd McFarlane started doing his own inks. Uh, Sal Buscema was doing his own inks. 
The only guy who wasn't was Alex Saviak, who we were lucky to have uh, Keith Williams inking him on Web of Spider-Man. Ironically, uh, Alex, of the three, is the only one still associated with Spider-Man. He's doing the uh, syndicated Spider-Man comic strip. That's right. Yeah. And he's now uh, and he's now penciling and inking it. <laughs> and he's actually he's now doing uh, Monday to Fridays as well because uh, Larry Lieber right. just retired. Right, right. So he he's uh, finally after yeah. all these years <laughs> penciling and inking his own work, and I think that's great because he's, he's an incredibly he's a great artist, someone yep. I love working with. And uh, totally underrated, uh, yeah. you know, wonderful, wonderful guy. But anyway, I wish I could have had him making uh, <laughs> his own work back then. But I think it was more practical for him, you know, the way he was, he was more comfortable with how he was working back then. But anyway, back to Sal, you know, just to wrap that up, you know, we got to the, uh, the big conclusion uh, of the uh, Tombstone storyline. And, you know, we would never hear uh, a peep out of Sal other than, you know, uh, sending pages in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But he said, you know, uh, very almost apologetically, like, uh, Jim, I know it's uh, not for me to, to say anything. I'm just the artist. No, no, Sal, you could definitely, uh, we value your opinion. And, and what he said was in the original plot we had, he felt it was, a, you know, because he was, absorbed in it. I and mean, he was, you know, uh, anticipating, you know, uh, eagerly looking forward to what was going to happen next. And he felt, oh, this is a little bit of a letdown. You know, I, I was hoping for a stronger finish. And sometimes what happens in, in doing monthly comics is you're, you're just, you know, you're under that pressure to keep getting things done that sometimes, you know, you're going a little fast and, and you, you don't take that step back. You need to have a, a better, you know, look at the big picture. And, you know, and I think Sal did. And once he said that to me, I knew he was right. I immediately called Jerry to his credit. He said, Sal's absolutely right. Let me work on that. And uh, I think we came up with a, a much stronger ending. And that was entirely because of, uh, you know, Sal Buscema. I'm wow. to the editor, but, you know, <laughs> When you have a you know when you have a team that's all we're all working together, that's great. I you know like if if uh, Jerry and I dropped the ball, you know being part of a team, Sal was there to say, "Hey, <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, come on, guys, yeah. uh, we got to make this good. You know, like we have all this build up. Let's 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 come up with something <laughs> great for the the finish. So, thank you, Sal. You know he was. Yeah. You know, not just the uh, penciler and inker. He, he he was involved. He he his uh, you know something uh, as simple as you know pointing that out to us as reluctant as he may have been was was vitally important and greatly appreciated. He's a great guy. Well, speaking of changing the endings, uh, when you came in to uh, to editing the Spider books, um, the Hobgoblin story was kind of just getting wrapped up here and. Uh, that has kind of a convoluted history, the, the Hobgoblin's origin. That's precisely correct. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the, the dictionary definition uh, for uh, convoluted. Yeah, yeah. Hobgoblin's <laughs> origin story. <laughs> what, uh, what was your role in the final decision on, on uh, where, you were, where 
Hobgoblin eventually ended up as Ned Leeds? I, I tried to talk to the, uh, the previous folks, and uh, Roger Stern, I guess, had his own idea of what it should be, and I was Roger's assistant at one point. And for whatever reason, you know, he, you know, chose to like, uh, you know, to stay out of it. You know, he, I, I, I respect him, and mm-hmm. he didn't want to be bothered at that particular point for for his own reasons, and that's okay. Uh, all that left, uh, who was willing to talk to me from the people who were working on these stories, was uh, Jim Owsley, who was the uh, you know previous uh, editor before mm-hmm. me. Yep. And and he said, he, and, and he wound up writing the story that, from everything I was uh, told, uh, this is, you know, how it was going to be under him. So uh, I just wanted to wrap it up as, uh, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and get past it and, uh, uh, you know, and move on. I, 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 I had a, a suspicion no matter what anyone did, there'd be someone... Uh, unhappy with it so uh right you know to me it was just i didn't want to prolong it i didn't want it to be any more convoluted than it already was uh, you know let's like make a big deal out of it and end it and uh and, and that was that i mean like to this day there are rumors <laughs> you know that there was controversy uh with the original green goblin uh reveal that right, yeah. uh, i don't know whether it's true or not i mean uh one of the you know, greatest fanboy moments of my life, and there have actually been many of them, was uh, before I left Marvel, I got to be in a meeting with Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Oh, nice. <laughs> and uh, what it was is I was uh, I was no longer doing the Spider-Man titles at that point. I was already thinking, uh, I think I knew I was going to be moving on from Marvel after uh, 20 years there. Uh, but, you know, I was <laughs> in my final days, and this was a, an opportunity that was almost too good, uh, I, I, I couldn't resist, where DeFalco was thinking of uh, getting Stan to edit some, you know, a new line of comics that he would, you know, edit and write some of them. Stan, I, I believe, had an idea that eventually turned into Ravage, was sort of a garbage man of the future. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and when I spoke to Stan about it, uh, you know, he was very much inspired and in wanting to do something that would have the look and feel of uh, Judge Dredd, you know, pr- probably the, when it was drawn by uh, the great Brian Bollett. So I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, that's a, something new for Stan. Yeah. So when... Uh, Tom directed me, said, well, he, he had a couple of choices for artists who I felt were not at all what Stan was looking for. And, you know, this whole process seemed, uh, like, problematic going in because first you have Stan, who was able to edit, <laughs> you know, Marvel Comics from the very beginning all by himself without my help or Tom DeFalco's help. So what... What, why were we involved? I'll never know. But uh, Tom was the editor-in-chief. He was telling me, hey, uh, you get along great with Stan, which is true. I absolutely love the man. And how can I resist working with him? 
but you know Stan would still have a say in all this so it was a, it was a very awkward thing so I think uh, the first artist up was Herb Trimpey because Tom very much was an old school Marvel guy as well like myself and uh, wanted to make sure uh, a lot of the old uh, pros that had been at Marvel a long time stayed busy and had plenty of work. Unfortunately, I, I don't think, you know, you know, like this was necessarily the right matchup. You know, like Stan's looking for one style, and Stan was very clear, like he felt so bad about it. I think Herb had done some samples, and he just felt, you know, it's just not the look uh, he was going for. This was that that weird period of time where, uh, you know, Herb had, had almost changed his style to look more like one of the uh, the image artists uh, in right, the early yeah. '90s. I remember that. And um, which was which is funny because when I spoke to Herb about it, he always felt like what everyone thought was his real style was Herb imitating Jack Kirby. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, like the closest to what, how he really drew uh, from his point of view uh, was actually <laughs> closer to one of the artists he admired from EC Comics, which was Jack Davis. And there was a, a humor comic, uh, I think it was Spoof, that uh, Herb did a few stories for. In those stories, I think that was, you know, Herb's true style, right? But otherwise, I think it's, it was always a blend of Herb and, and Jack Kirby. So then, when he was told, "Hey, you know, kids like this new image style," you know, Herb was just trying to, you know, uh, give the fans and the editors what what he thought they wanted. Right. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it wasn't what Stan was looking for. And then the next suggestion was even more absurd. <laughs> In that context, and, and her printy, it was uh, Steve Ditko, which again, I have to give uh, Tom credit for his, you know, I think his, his main uh, reasons for recommending those artists is not necessarily that he thought they could do, you know, the kind of uh, art that Stan was looking for, but that they were available and that maybe they'd sort of fallen out of uh, fashion with the current editors. Although I always liked working with Steve. I worked with him uh, after I left Marvel uh, at Tops, And uh, and even when I was uh, uh, the Spider-Man editor, where it was incredibly tricky to work with him because he never wanted to draw Spider-Man ever again. And uh, But I still got him to do a, a couple of short stories for some of the annuals. Right, the speedball was one of those, right? Uh, no, uh, he, he he did speedball with Tom, which which goes to show that. Uh, and speedball was introduced in one of the uh, the annuals. I think it was in a story probably written by Tom and penciled by Ron Friends. But he did he did a uh, Captain Universe story and an Ant Man story when we were doing. Uh, Spidey's totally tiny adventure. Right. So I, you know, and, and I think one of those annuals, you, uh, I managed to get almost everyone, you know, from, uh, you know, like uh, maybe not John Romita, but there was like Gil Kane, uh, Ross Andrew, <laughs> yeah. Steve Ditko. 
I mean, there was a bunch of uh, Spider-Man annuals that I, I, I managed to gather together, uh, uh, and that was a lot of fun to do. But uh, but for this meeting, it was you know to do this garbage man of the future, and I knew it was uh, you know destined you know not to be. But how can I possibly not want to have a meeting? With uh, Steve Deco and Stanley, particularly when I when I know I, I probably won't be, you know, staying at Marvel much longer, so I, I just couldn't resist. And I remember calling Steve, and he was used to talking to me on the phone because he had done those other assignments for me. And uh, and I said, hey, you know, like Stan's going to be in town, and he has an idea for uh, uh, a new strip that maybe uh, you know the two of you could work on. Would you be interested in coming in to meet with him? And there was a pause. And this is totally, totally 100% conjecture on my part. But if I had to turn this into a comic, I would, ha- I would draw Steve on the other end of the line with a word balloon, a thought balloon over his head where he's thinking, ah, he's finally come crawling back to me. <laughs> 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 but um, he didn't say anything like that or imply anything. Just me, you know, projecting that on. Right. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you no, know, he paused. But he said, "Sure, I'll come in." And we we had the meeting in Terry Stewart's office, and the two guys absolutely adored and respected each other. It was absolutely wonderful to, you know, I would have been happy to be a fly on the wall, but just sitting there, able to engage with them was was wonderful. You know, uh, you could see that just. Tremendous respect and admiration for each other. Stan pitched his uh, his idea, and predictably, and I think Steve uh, was very, you know, diplomatic about it. And try, he tried to explain that you know uh, his concept of a hero in the future, you know, might be closer to say the characters in Star Trek, a very optimistic view of the future. You know right. that things are going to be good and wonderful. And, Man is conquering space, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to, you know, a, a garbage man <laughs> in a post post apocalyptic, you know, yeah. horrible future. You know, so I think, and, and it's almost one of my regrets, but I think if I hadn't been planning to leave Marvel, I might have picked up on that and said, "Stan." We'll find someone else for <laughs> for the garbage man guy, but I think we could definitely come up with something, you know, uh, for you and Steve to do based on what he just said, you know, mm. because the opening was there. Steve was willing, and he was still, you know, drawing incredibly well. I mean, some of the work he did for me later at Tops on the uh, Kirby verse—it's just beautiful work, mm-hmm. excellent work. You know, over the years, his, his work got a lot simpler and sketchier and scratchier and, and, and you know, doesn't compare well with his, his, his greatest work. But still, in the early 90s, uh, he had it, and he was good. And, and, and the opportunity to have had one more Stanley, uh, Steve Ditko creation was, uh, you know, an opportunity uh, that, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, I didn't take advantage of. Instead, uh, Stan going for the big bucks <laughs> when it was clear that Steve had no interest in doing this new character, 
you know, Stan couldn't resist and said, uh, and asked Steve, uh, well, you know, why, why can't we just do one more Spider-Man? <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get rich. You'll, you'll sell a million copies. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, Steve just, uh, again, politely declined. Yeah. And I think I understood why. And, uh, you know, uh, his, his answer at that meeting was that, you know, he could just never care as much as he did back when he was working on Spider-Man the first time around. And I, I've seen that happen with so many other artists where particularly when they're doing company-owned characters and they pour so much of themselves into it that the slightest little thing where they get, they might, you know, might just seem to anyone else to be a minor point, but if the editors or whomever overrides it, it disconnects the artist in a way that they feel, what the, why am I caring so much? I don't own this. I should do my own thing. And from now on, I'm just going to do what they tell me. And that's happened so many times with mm-hmm. so many great artists. It, it's unfortunate, but yeah, you know, I, I think that's just how it works sometimes. So, uh, for me, I, I was thrilled again to just be able to be in the same room with these two guys. So, so that that was uh, an unexpected uh, treat for me, and uh, I'll probably remember that forever. I mean, they did such wonderful work together on uh, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and all their little fantasy stories, et cetera, et cetera. We just lost Steve uh, a few months ago, and I, I still miss him. He was a wonderful guy. Yeah, wow. Very talented artist, one of a kind. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. That's that's really great. Yeah, no, I, I loved it, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the wedding of Peter and Mary Jane? Because that was uh, sort of a big deal, um, even with like the live-action wedding that happened in the, the stadium and such. What was that like, putting that together? Well, it was frustrating <laughs> in that, and I blame it all on myself, Essentially, what happened was a little miscommunication. Uh, Stan was working on the Spider-Man syndicated comic strip, and like with so many long-running <laughs> series, you know, eventually uh, the idea is like, well, wh- what about uh, marrying uh, the hero to his uh, long, long-time girlfriend? It just seems inevitable. And particularly in the comic strip, where uh, Peter, for the most part, was only seeing Mary Jane. And uh, it's interesting, for many reasons, uh, at Paper Cuts, uh, I don't think I've announced this anywhere else yet, so you're getting an exclusive. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the biggest comics in, in all of Brazil is, uh, is a kid strip. Yeah, starring uh, a girl with uh, buck teeth and, and brandishing a, a, a plush bunny rabbit that she wallops her opponents with, and it's called Monica. And every month in Brazil, Monica sells millions of comics. And there was a spinoff in Brazil called Monica Teen, because Monica's just a little girl in her main title. And Monica's been published for... I think over 50 years now in Brazil, and is uh, appears in uh, 
other language, many other languages in other countries all over the world, but for whatever reason, she hasn't uh, broken through in the United States yet. Paper Cuts uh, recently launched a new imprint uh, years ago called Charms, with a mother V at the end of it. <laughs> and uh, the basic premise for those titles are, you know, similar to the Archie comics in a way, uh, you know, romantic, humorous uh, stories, graphic novels, you know, for girls or boys or anyone who likes that kind of material. And uh, we have uh, a whole bunch of uh, titles under the Charms imprint. My assistant at Paper Cuts, who has traveled to Brazil quite often, uh, is very familiar with Brazilian comics, made me aware of Monica. As a matter of fact, this will give you a sense of how popular Monica is in Brazil. Right now, they're working on, to be published only in Brazil, a Monica Justice League of America JLA crossover. Really? They've even had in comics, in in the Brazilian comics, uh, crossovers with Tezuka's characters, for example. Oh, you know, wow, really? Um, Astro Boy yeah. and Monica have met. And within Brazil, you know, the creator of Monica, Mauricio de Souza, you know, there, I think there's a, a biography of him in print where he, there's so many photos of him with, other, with these other comic book gods came to <laughs> Brazil. Yeah. They always get together with him. So there's photos of... Uh, Mauricio with Will Eisner and Mauricio with, uh, you know, Stan Lee, et cetera. And, uh, so this is, this is sort of like this huge, huge property that we were able to get. And it's only because you're mentioning the wedding that w- one of the things in the, for 50 years <laughs> in the main kids comic, you know, there's like Monica has had, uh, this other character, J5. That has been, you know, sort of her, you know, rival. You know, like Monica has her little group, or her little gang, and uh, you know, and they're always vying, you know, who could become the leader. So it's sort of this love-hate relationship. Right. There was a spin-off title published in Brazil called Monica Teen, which caught my attention because I felt it would be suitable for our charms line. You know, it looks like very modern. Uh, approach to the same kind of material that, uh, you know, Archie Comics has done so well over the years. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, this is, this would be, you know, this is exactly what we were looking for, for charms. So the first issue, the first graphic novel we're publishing is really just sort of an introductory thing, setting up all the characters. And, and the second one is sort of where J5, the Monica character, Finally, after all these years, if you were a Brazilian fan <laughs> following them, they finally declare their uh, their love for each other. And uh, each each one of the books we're doing has a special message from Mauricio himself. And in that one, he's writing about how, uh, you know, this is something that the fans have wanted for so long. But, but then he mentions all the classic comic strip characters who got married and, you know, then you never saw them again. And he's saying, maybe, maybe they shouldn't get married because, you know, that could be the end, you know, (laughs) and, 
And so I had to respond and saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I was the guy who uh, was editor when Mary Jane and uh, Peter Parker got married, and it never seemed to hurt the sales <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of Spider-Man. And uh, although there, there was always factions that were horribly against the idea. So uh, in, in the Monica book, it's like uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, and it's fun to be working on something like that. And to go back to your question, it started, as I said, with Stanley wanting to uh, fix up, uh, you know, get uh, Peter and Mary Jane hitched in, in the comic strip so he could have another angle, you know, fresh material to write stories about. And so I remember very clearly I was walking through the hallowed halls of Mighty Marvel when I was <laughs> approached by the editor-in-chief, uh, Jim Shooter himself, and he said, what do I, this is how the big decisions are made. <laughs> you know, he asked me, what, what do you think of uh, Peter Parker and MJ getting married? You know, I'm a little stunned at first, and you know, I, I hadn't been the Spider-Man editor all that long yet, so I was trying to think, what can I do with this character who appears in so many titles for months and has done, you know, like uh, one of the challenges of editing any ongoing character is, you know, how to keep it constantly interesting, true to itself, and, uh, you know, compelling to long-time readers uh, as well you know, without making it dull and seem like it's just a rehash of the same old stuff all the time. It's, it's not easy to do. The marriage thing seemed like, uh, well, that, that opens up uh, the door to all sorts of creative possibilities. And I was specifically thinking just the idea of them, you know, that, that you know, the buildup alone. I was thinking literally years you know, there were classic TV shows, Moonlighting, for example, with Bruce Willis and uh, Sybil Shepherd, And uh, it was a great show. Or even more recently, The X-Files. Or, you know, there's tons of TV shows where, you you know, Cheers even. You know, like there there have been all these shows and uh, others, you know, any kind of uh, uh, serialized form of entertainment. You know, it, it, it's it's nothing new. It's it's just it's almost like, a, you know, one one of the classic things where you have the you know, you know these characters who are uh, romantically interested in each other, and and you can get so much mileage out of will they or won't they, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what I was thinking of. So I mistakenly thought that when Jim approached me in the hallway, Jim Shooter, that he, it was just a preliminary question. Like, would I be, you know, Stan's thinking about possibly getting the characters married in the comic strip? You know, what did I think of that? You know, and I think I said, I think that's a great idea. And in my mind, I was thinking we'd get together at some other point and, and like, map out <laughs> how we would get there. So I didn't think much of it after that and just went back to editing the comics. And then like a few months later, Jim came back to me and said, okay, Stan's having them married in June. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and he'd like to have it, you know, the same thing in the comics. And we could call, you know, I'm like, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. <laughs> it was not at all what I was anticipating or expecting or, 
it was my fault. Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I was assuming, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I and and I I, I assumed one hundred percent incorrectly of how this was proceeding, and I was forgetting. Uh, you know, uh, maybe I was away from Stan too much at that point, but one of the key traits about Stan Lee is he's a very impatient guy. So when he asks a question, you know, and just you give the answer that, you know, and, and, and I did, then that to him was, okay, they're getting married. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, I don't even think uh, Peter and Mary Jane were even seeing each other in the comic books. Right. So we had to just, uh, you know, throw out storylines that were already planned, move things around, juggle, you oh, know, man. rewrite. It, it was uh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone involved uh, did the best they could, and, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, Jim Shooter got very much involved in uh, plotting the, uh, the annual itself, uh, the wedding. And uh, I enjoyed designing the covers, and uh, one of the things I enjoyed was uh, uh, going back to Ditko again. In the early, uh, and, and speaking of logos again, <laughs> in the early Ditko Spider-Man comics on the splash page, you know, there was almost a Spider-Man logo, which was that round web shape, you know, like the, mm -hmm. the spider signal that he hardly ever uses. Right. You know, it's a, it's, it's just a, a circle with the eyes and the web. So, you know, the design of his mask. And uh, it, it, he used it as a, a logo on page one. And uh, for the wedding, I couldn't resist uh, making, instead of a circle, a heart shape. Oh, yeah. And then and using that on the, you know, I didn't do, Marvel hadn't done too many variant covers, and I, I, I couldn't resist, I figured. Because, again, as I said before, the newsstand market was still uh, pretty important. So we figured we'd do one cover for the newsstand, which was, you know, Spider-Man by John Romita in the red and blue costume, which I wanted to go back to all the time anyway right. even though in the story he's still wearing <laughs> oh yeah i didn't even notice that the black and white costume yeah. well i think we had a, a dream sequence or something where he has the red and blue costume on and, uh, and of course in the comic strip he always had the red and blue <laughs> costume on he never had the black and white costume right. on and and so like supposedly this was you know like if if i wasn't already crazy about uh, or not crazy about Spidey and appearing in uh, three separate comic books. I wasn't even factoring in. He also appeared every day in a newspaper yeah, comic. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it was yet another, you know, I, I, I haven't, uh, maybe you know, is, is the newspaper Spider-Man uh, uh, part of the Spider-Verse? <laughs> oh, I'm sure probably at some point. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I wouldn't be You're surprised. You're not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Spider-Ham is, why not? But uh, well, yeah, right. anyhow, so it, it was just this crazy thing where, uh, you know, we, we, we had to pull it all together. And part of my thinking for a while in terms of trying to do something different uh, was, you know, like... Uh, and it becomes such a cliche. There are two things I wanted to avoid as long as possible. 
And one was stories with Dr. Octopus, uh, only because it, 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 it became like the ultimate uh, cliche Spider-Man story. Right. To the point where uh, Marvel came out with this thing called the Marvel Tryout Book. Yeah. And, and it was like, you know, well done. It was trying to, you know, show artists, you know, you know how to how to do samples and storytelling. It's you know what the paper looks like, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a, a wonderful book. But I think one of the unforeseen side effects was it was almost like saying, you know, well this is what we want. We just want Spider-Man battling Doctor Octopus over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it was like my worst nightmare. It's yeah. like, no, no, we, we, we want to make keep the character fresh and interesting and exciting, and 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 not you know like oh he he, he you know shoots some webs on his glasses, Doc Ock's glasses, and, and wins again. You know, like uh, no, <laughs> let's not do that. I think the only, I think the only time I really used them. It was, a, it was a couple of times. Uh, he's unavoidable. I think one was uh, uh, something that was already scheduled where I think he was on top of the World Trade Center with fighting Spider-Man in, in uh, one of the issues before uh, uh, 300. And then I, I, I had to use him when uh, at one point uh, I was <laughs> almost got my wish of a, uh, a weekly Spider-Man comic but it's, it was a bi-weekly. What, what the sales department told us at the last minute was, we'll make Amazing Spider-Man bi-weekly, two times a month uh, during the summer months. When, you know, because on the newsstand, when kids are out you know, for summer, you know, they buy more comic books. Hmm. So that, that made sense. Great idea. Yep. So all of a sudden, uh, here I am struggling to keep regular teams and all my titles. And I have to tell them, hey, guess what? <laughs> We're going to be doing uh, even more. I think uh, for the second time around, I couldn't resist because in, in, in three months, two issues a month, you know, instead of doing what we did the first time, sort of individual unrelated stories, I thought we could have one big six-part story. And what could I, what could be the premise? And I had that bouncing around in my head, six issues, six issues. And then uh, for some reason it occurred to me that up until that point, the Sinister Six had never regrouped or returned. Right, since the, since its original appearance. Exactly, yeah. it was the first Spider-Man annual. And I, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> you know, what an opportunity. And uh, I think Eric Larson was the artist at that time, so... We threw in Doc Ock. He was an original member. <laughs> David yeah. Michelini did a great job. We, 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 you know, it was a lot of homages to the original annual where I think uh, we tried each issue to have that full page panel with Spidey, you know, val- uh, battling one of the, the Sinister Six, just like the annual had. Right. So, so that was great fun. But anyhow, I keep getting sidetracked, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But but the idea was just for uh, you know talking about the wedding was uh, in a nutshell it was something that was you know shooter had asked me about it I was in favor of it 
I made the mistake of thinking we'd have a lot more time to build up to it. Literally, I was thinking years. Stan was thinking <laughs> of weeks. <laughs> oh, and so we wound up with, uh, with what we did. But what I was uh, just saying before is uh, one of the things I wanted after the wedding uh, issues, which depending on how you look at it, because uh, uh, I think uh, Craven's Last Hunt followed that as well, which had to be one of the, uh, <laughs> uh, in some aspects, the most uh, depressing Spider-Man stories ever. Right. But at the same time, uh, Mary Jane was sort of uh, a pivotal you know, reason for why Spider-Man clawed himself out of the grave to, right, right. to continue to live, et cetera, et cetera. Echoes, yet again, no matter what you try to do in Spider-Man, you know, someone you, you could point back to something that Stan Lee and Steve Ditko did originally. So their most classic sequence where with Peter Parker lifting that heavy, drippy machinery mm-hmm. off himself and thinking he must do it for Aunt May, et cetera, et cetera. This was sort of our version where he's digging up out of the <laughs> the grave, thinking not for himself, but you know, uh, he just got married and he loves Mary Jane, and, and this, this this character is all about responsibility. What's more responsible than getting married, et cetera, et cetera? But aside from that story, I wanted, I was hoping that we could have sort of a honeymoon period, <laughs> right? For Peter Parker, and just have some things actually go well, you know. For that, for you know, of course, everything would be undone. But you know, he wanted him not to have to worry about his rent. Uh, you know, uh, you know. Uh, I mean, after all, he's married to a, a beautiful supermodel. You know, we had him publish a, a book of his photos that was successful, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you know, it, it, after a while, you know. Uh, you know, it's inevitable with you know, that that old Parker luck. You know, everything that seemed like it was good you know, turned <laughs> turned into a nightmare again. Yeah. So, uh, it, one of the uh, <laughs> great things about uh, being a comic book editor is it, it keeps people like me out of prison because we're we're constantly just torturing these fictional characters <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and getting paid to do it, but. You know, they're, they're these wonderful characters, but uh, the stories that people always remember the most, the villains uh, people remember the most, are the ones that create the most pain and suffering for the heroes. <laughs> the real villains, like the worst villains of all, obviously must be the comic book editors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I think the writers and artists would probably agree with that. <laughs> mm. Well, uh, one final question. We've already gone well over our time that I that I suggested, but um, I told you I yeah. would. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. One one final question for you here is um, the 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 road to issue three hundred and kind of paving the way for this uh, new character called Venom. Can you tell me a little bit about that creation and kind of the the fan reaction to his his uh, appearance? Sure. Uh, well, you're going to see a, a, almost a recurring theme here in that. Uh, just like with the uh, Spider-Man wedding, there being some uh, miscommunication and plans having to be scrambled, et cetera, et cetera, something similar happened uh, on the road to uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 300. The first thing I should mention, to give it some context, 
is my own feelings about uh, <laughs> the black and white costume. It's sort of a love-hate relationship. On one hand, I think it was great for Spider-Man for a lot of reasons in that. It's hard to, you know, before you started reading Spider-Man, there was a generation of uh, comics fans who grew up watching some show called The Electric Company right. that Spider-Man appeared on. And uh, there was a companion comic published by Marvel called Spidey Super Stories. Mm-hmm. The premise being, you know, this comic would help kids learn how to read. Of course, I learned how to read reading the regular Marvel comics. I always question the idea when they do these. Well, this Spider-Man comic is for kids. Well, what was I when I was reading <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Spider-Man? Anyhow, uh, I was actually one of the, the long-term writers on Spidey Super Stories, so I was... You know, indirectly responsible for, I think, uh, kind of damaging the character in a way. In this sense, between appearing on this show that was very clearly for young children and, you know, having the red and blue costume and, you know, and, and having Spidey Super Stories, et cetera, et cetera, and, and the trend that was going on in comics in the 80s was the audience was getting uh, a little older, a little bit more mature, and uh, particularly around 1986, when you had comics like Watchmen and uh, The Dark Knight come out. But before that, even, Frank Miller was doing uh, a very dark version of uh, Daredevil and Marvel. And... uh, you know, even characters who started in, in Spider-Man, like the Kingpin, you know, were sort of uh, redone, you know, by by Frank, and and done in a far more darker, serious manner that, you know, made them much more formidable characters. And Spider-Man, I think, to that audience, that that's you know enjoying this new approach, you know, like this darker turn. Spider-Man, they couldn't help thinking, well, he's he's just this goofy, you know, kitty character. Nothing against him. They liked him, but they I don't think they thought, you know, he was on the same level as these other characters. And I think by introducing the black and white costume, it gave a reason for comics fans who didn't want to be seen as uh, liking some silly kitty comic. No, no, this is not that, the Spidey Super Story Spider-Man. This is the serious black and white costume Spider-Man. So I think it was, there was that reason, plus just the unexpected shock of a, of a very successful superhero getting a new costume. Right. Usually... The characters up until that point who would get new costumes were the characters that were on the verge of cancellation. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, a, a you know, here's Dr. Strange's new costume. <laughs> yeah, here's, here's the Samaria's new costume. You yeah. know, like it was just a last-ditch attempt to, like, uh, try to do something to, to, to make the characters more popular. And, and invariably, it, it, it often didn't work. But... I think it had that, it it was so unexpected and and, and so shocking that uh, 
you know, it, it made a, a big hit with the, with the current fans at that point. So, uh, you know, they were very excited. And, and to that generation, you know, the black and white costume is their Spider-Man. Right. You know, just as the red and blue is mine. So, like, uh, I'm probably the most hated guy <laughs> for those people <laughs> because, you know, Jim Shooter, you know, really, uh, you know, uh, Spider-Man would have had that... Uh, black and white costume a lot longer if I didn't come along as editor. Because he was, you know, he, he was the uh, writer on uh, Secret Wars who introduced it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot of people involved. I think uh, it was actually some fan who wrote in suggesting a black and white costume. Stan, uh, Jim loved the idea. I think uh, even Roger Stern suggested... Uh, what the powers could be based on uh, some character that John Byrne was going to use that Roger vetoed and said, oh, we could use it for this alien costume, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of stuff. You know, a lot of people were involved. You know, Mike Zach, I believe, designed it. You know, right. Just on and on. A lot of, lot of people involved doing that. And it went over very well. It was a big success. And then for some reason, <laughs> you know, uh, there's this Shalakrup guy comes along who's, who's just messing things up right to left. He's marrying the character off. He's, uh, you know, what, what, what else can he screw up here? And, and, and one of the things that I, I felt strongest about was, uh, for all the reasons that the black and white costume was probably working with the audience, I didn't like it because a big believer in that every character has to be as true to themselves as possible. So the original Marvel Daredevil, you know, I didn't mind going darker because the original Daredevil in many ways was sort of, even Stan would have admitted, you know, trying to be another character in the Spider-Man mold. And by going darker, that finally gave Daredevil a solid, strong identity. You know, not contradicting anything that really came before, but just treating it, in, in, you know, very differently than, than the style of Spider-Man. And, and, and it really made Daredevil work. So I have no problems with changing and improving characters, et cetera, et cetera. When I saw the black and white costume... Uh, my initial thought was, and you could see where this leads, oh, this makes him look like a villain. <laughs> <laughs> the red and blue Spider-Man to me was the real Spider-Man, and I, I wanted that. And I figured, okay, they, they, Marvel always likes to have something uh, momentous in their anniversary issues, and I knew the 300 issue was coming up. So I figured... I'll have to get, you know, Jim's permission to see if I could go back to the red and blue costume. Right. And I have to give him a lot of credit because he was the editor-in-chief. He was the one very much involved. And I think, you know, he wanted to uh, keep Spider-Man in that black and white costume for as long as possible because it's one of those things, whenever they try to do a big change with a major character, you know, the more cynical fans will say stuff like, Oh, it's not going to last. They'll, they'll go back to, you know, the status quo sooner or later. 
which generally is true. But I think in this case, you know, Jim was committed. He got all the okays from everyone he needed. And, you know, uh, the black and white costume, you know, could have been around today. But Jim, I guess, was, uh, you know, willing to, you know, give his editors a lot of, uh, you know, control and do things the way, you know, they thought was best. And uh, I said, well, can we go back to the red and blue in the 300th issue? And, you know, he was a little reluctant and possibly even hurt by the suggestion. But he, he said, sure, if that's what you want to do, go right ahead. Nice. And that's what we were originally planning. But as usual, <laughs> stuff happens. And uh, eventually, uh, we had a new editor-in-chief in place at Marvel, and that was uh, good old Tom DeFalco. You know, so he was, you know, taking over and wanting to get a, a clearer picture of what was going on in all the titles. And so at one point, I was in a meeting with him, and he wanted to know what, what our plans were for Amazing Spider-Man uh, 300. So I proudly said, "Oh well, we're we're going, you know, we're going back to the the red and blue costume." And I, you know, I was hoping we could still do that. And uh, fortunately, you know, Tom had no problem with that. He was fine with that. But surprisingly, he said, "That's not enough." (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) what else would you like, sir? He was very specific. He said uh, he wanted a major new Spider-Man supervillain. Now, (laughs) think about that. Uh, You know, Spider-Man had been around, uh, obviously amazing, it was issue 300, but there was Web of Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, and Spider-Man and Marvel team-up, and on and on and on. And if you had to list the major Spider-Man villains, I would say the majority of them were created by Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, and John Romita. Right. And there were, you know, it's not that writers and artists after them didn't try to come up with major villains. There were hundreds of new villains were introduced. Yeah. And, you know, even Stan and Romita would come up with such winners like uh, the Gibbon. And, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know, there's... uh, tons of them and uh, I loved all of them <laughs> I would use them whenever I could but major supervillain okay well alright you know uh, again here we here we were we had plans uh, in place we were going to do this we we're going to do that and uh, something happens and now we have to you know start all over rethink what we're going to do I discussed it with uh, the, the amazing Spider-Man writer David Michelotti who I have to give a lot of credit uh, to, who always, <laughs> always cool, calm, and collected in a crisis. Uh, you know, whenever I would call him up, uh, whether it was on the wedding stuff or, you know, issue 300, okay, what do we do? And, 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 we, and he would just focus on whatever needed uh, to be done. And I, I think I was thinking, well, you, since the costume was sort of already theme and, and part of what we were heading towards, it seemed to make sense to do something along those lines. And and since I wanted to go back to the red and blue costume, uh, it made sense, well, and I always thought the costume would you know, look better on a villain. And I knew uh, 
David had, had, had been planting seeds in a couple of previous comics where he had had plans for having a woman in the uh, alien costume. Okay. So we were talking about, you know, possibly doing that. And I think under normal circumstances, if this was just for a non-anniversary issue of Amazing or that, we would have done that storyline. But in my head, <laughs> vibrating around in the, uh, was it had to be a major new Spider-Man villain. Uh, I did what uh, most cowardly editors do in situations like this. I said, okay, David, I think we got something there. But in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, we don't, you know, we don't want Spider-Man in the 300th issue uh, fighting a girl. <laughs> not, not, to, not to be sexist or anything, but this was also a different time back right. then. Yeah. And eventually, uh, you know, there have been women in uh, that alien costume uh, several times now. But back then, what, what I was thinking was, no, we want the scariest, meanest, toughest, uh, new villain ever, you know, to come along. And I thought, you know, if we put that alien costume on some, you know, big, you know, much bigger, scarier looking guy than Peter Parker, he'll have all of Spider-Man's powers, but he's bigger and stronger. Yeah. There, there's your threat. There you go. So I knew, having worked with Tom before and you know, that our, our thinking was very similar on this, that if I pitched David's idea, to, you know, of the woman in the costume to him, uh, he would suggest what I just <laughs> Right, yeah. Said. You know, it's almost like what lawyers do. They never ask a witness uh, a question they don't know the answer to already. So I wasn't going to ask Tom DeFalco something that I, I, I didn't know, I didn't have a good idea what he would say. And, and sure enough, uh, he said, make it a, a guy and have him be bigger and tougher, et cetera, et cetera. I, I went back to David. Again, David, the total professional, no problem. He, he, was, uh, he came up with the idea of using uh, Eddie Brock mm -hmm. to wear the costume. Uh, he came up with the name Venom. We were able to uh, set it up. So uh, he made his mini debut in the Amazing 299. Uh, and, of course, in the 300, we had our, what we were hoping, you know, to be uh, a major new Spider-Man villain. And uh, who would have guessed that he actually did become one? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, did he ever. I, I recently, for the first time in 30 years at a convention in Phoenix this year, David uh, Michelini, Todd McFarlane, mm -hmm. and myself got to, you know, were together for the very first time. We've been together, you know, separately and in, in pairs of, you know, you know, but n never all three of us. So uh, when I got to talking to them, uh, you know, it, it was fun, and we were rehashing how we came up with it. And uh, Todd revealed that uh, uh, when he was drawing it uh, at three hundred, he didn't realize that was uh, there was a human inside the costume. Oh, which is why he did those teeth and the tongue. And, and and most people think it was Todd who did that incredibly long tongue, but that was actually uh, Eric Larson who started doing that. Right. So basically, with these editorial meetings, we you know 
how to come up with a major Spider-Man villain. You know, we tied it into the theme that we were already uh, going back to the red and blue, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Michelinie did the script. Todd did a great job. Made Venom as, as evil and as scary. And, uh, you know, the two of them were, were a great team. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, that was so great about Venom, Spider-Man had this sort of rogues gallery of villains that, he, that, that have been trotted out so many times mm-hmm. that I, I think... You know, fans didn't have uh, any uh, any doubt. Oh, it's this guy again. Spider-Man's only beat him 43 times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, oh, the, the Vulture, he's, a, he's an old guy with wings. Oh, he's real scary. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing that really sold Venom to the audience was that he was scary as hell in that you could easily believe, and you could tell Peter Parker probably believed, that this guy could kill him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bite his head off. And uh, that added a whole new level of tension and drama and, uh, you know, and, and, and got the fans excited, you know. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, Nicolini, uh as writer and, Todd is artist and Eric and all the others that followed. You know, they just did a wonderful job with uh, Venom. Well, I think we should wrap things up here. It's been an hour and a half. <laughs> That's fantastic. I thank you very much for taking the time to do this. No problem. Yeah, we should do this again because there's so much more that we could, uh, that I would love to pick your brain about. And uh, <laughs> probably I'd like to ask you some Smurfs questions as well. <laughs> like, um, that would be smart-tastic. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Okay, here's just one one quick one here. Um, I've been picking up <laughs> all of your Smurf anthologies, and I just love them. Um, has the line slowed down? Because I haven't seen a new announcement for Smurfs lately. Uh, the anthologies. Uh, no, no, we have. Uh, it, it's all. Uh, it's constantly uh, changing formats and what have you. Uh, I think. Uh, in stores now is a paperback uh, series that we just started called uh, Smurfs Three and One. Oh yeah, I think it's sort that. of uh, you know restarting it again from the beginning and uh, three graphic, just sort of like the uh, the anthologies, but without the uh, Johan and Peewee stories in it. It's all Smurfs, but I got to put the purple Smurf on the. Uh, on the cover right. of uh, Smurfs Three One Number One, and originally in in Belgium and France, that was the black Smurf. Oh, Are you yeah. aware of that? Yes, yes. You're on top so. of it. Yep. Happy to hear. So to me, it's almost like uh, you know the purple Smurf is the venom of the <laughs> right. Smurf world. Totally. <laughs> he, 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 he's uh, an evil Smurf who uh, wants to bite other Smurfs, turn them into, uh, you know, more evil Smurfs. <laughs> yeah, I love that story. So, yeah, yeah, we had, a, we, we had to change it from uh, black Smurf to purple Smurf. Actually, they, the Smurf people didn't want us to run that uh, comic story here at all, because, you know, they were thinking, you know, the, 
the artwork and everything. They didn't want to alter anything. You know, they're preserving the Peo's legacy. Mm -hmm. But uh, I showed them, I said, well, when it was adapted to TV here in the Hanna-Barbera series, they solved the problem of, you know, we didn't want to, if someone's a young African-American and and they love the Smurfs and they hear there's a character, the Black Smurf, you know, how are they going to feel when they see right, it? And, yeah. and he's this sort of a, you know, uh, it, it easily be misinterpreted as racist. Whereas the truth of the matter, it was very much inspired uh, by the Black Plague, which if you're if you grew up in Europe, you have a you're much more familiar with the, the history of, of the Black Plague yeah, than right. than being an American. So uh, so we would just you know like so the Smurf people didn't want uh, any misunderstanding, so they were keeping that from being translated. Uh, into English for many years, and then I'm uh, a troublemaker and had to come along and said, "Let me do it." And, and well, good uh, for you. <laughs> we we got samples. We made it purple. Everything worked out okay. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. Well, perfect. I'll let you go. Yeah, let's, Thank let's, you uh, for your end patience. That. No, that's great. I loved it. I love this whole thing. This was just fantastic, Jim. I thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs>